profoundly this morning. And thank you, Fiona, for um, just reminding us of all of those that are serving on the mission field um, at the moment. It's good to be reminded and to keep them in our prayers. Um, Just before I come and and, and speak to you guys this morning, we're just going to watch a video for five minutes. So if you could direct your attention to the screen. Check it out for yourself. Okay? Good. (laughs) Come on, guys. Wakey-wakey. Right, so let's dive back in. We're in chapter 7, as I've said. 2 Corinthians, if you've got your Bibles with you. Um, Last week, Steve finished us off on verse 1 of chapter 7, actually, um, which says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, I don't know who decided where these chapter headings should go. We need to remember, of course, this is a letter, not a book. It didn't originally have chapters. Um, actually, I, I do know, I looked it up. It's a guy called Stephen Langton. All right? He's an, uh, a, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 12th century. Um, and my theory is that, that after naming, putting the, the chapters in a lot of the books of the Bible, he eventually just sort of got bored um, and decided to just sort of plonk his finger on the page where he thought it should go. Because in my mind, this verse that starts chapter 7 should quite clearly be at the end of chapter 6. Because this is Paul summarising everything that he's been saying pretty much since chapter 3. So I think this should be the end of chapter 6, and then I think... Um, this is me correcting the Bible here. I'm not actually. I'm correcting where the chapters should be. Um, I think then the whole thing should be put in parenthesis because everything we've looked at in the past few weeks has essentially been a digression. It's been a really good digression with lots of challenges for us. But actually, Paul started saying something in chapter 2 that he moved away from, for, from 3 to 6. And now, for the rest of this chapter, he's going to come back to what he was saying in chapter 2. So hopefully you've all remembered what he said in chapter 2, so we can pick up from there. You know, a little bit later on in this letter, Paul says, um, I may indeed be an untrained speaker, but I do have knowledge. And I think he hits the nail on the head when he says that, because, you know, if he was a trained speaker, he'd made a couple of very clear points. They'd have probably all started with the same letter. Um, He'd have had a little PowerPoint to go along with it. But that's not how Paul writes this letter. Paul just speaks from his heart, and he has so much knowledge that he wants to impart to the Corinthians, so much that he wants to say. Let me just give you uh, an example of that. So we started in chapter 2, and he is explaining in that chapter why he has sent the Corinthians, the last letter he did. After his painful visit that we heard about on the video, he sends them a letter, and he's explaining why he chose to do that. And as he's um, thinking about that, it seems to spark something in his imagination. And he says, actually, you know what, guys, you're a bit like letters. You're like our letters of commendation. God can be seen in your life. And then that leads him on to think about the, the, the old covenant, because that was written in letters as well. But actually, the, the covenant didn't produce lasting results. It faded. Uh, and, and so um, God writes this new covenant in his spirit. And then that leads him to think about how the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He says we're jars of clay. You remember that and how God's 
power shines out of us and can be seen in our weakness. And then that gets him thinking about the temporary nature of our bodies. So he talks about our resurrection bodies and how we're going to come face to face with Jesus. And then that gets him thinking about meeting Jesus and how when we meet him, we need to show that we've lived a life worthy of the calling that he's given us. And then he talks about how we do that and how we shouldn't be unequally yoked and we are going to keep ourselves pure. Uh, and, then, and then I think he stops and he goes, what was I talking about again? And so the rest of this chapter, he comes back to where he started in chapter 2. The reason that he was writing this letter. So, with all that in mind, (laughs) I'm going to read the rest of this chapter. Um, And it's not that all that he's been saying in the past few weeks is, is nonsense. Not at all. Remember, Paul has all this knowledge and all this wisdom from God. And it's all stuff that's really good and useful for us. But I just want you to have this in context of where we're coming back to this morning. So let me um, read through the rest of this chapter, and then we'll just unpick it for a bit this morning. So verse 2 then. He says, Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken to you with great frankness. I take pride in you. I'm greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not unharmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So, even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we're encouraged. And in addition to our own encouragement, we're especially delighted to see how happy Titus was, because his spirit was refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you've not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad that I can have complete confidence in you. Okay. So, we know that Paul had sent the Corinthians a letter. A letter that is unfortunately lost to us. It's not included in our Bibles. Um, It was a deeply personal letter and it was written to address a specific issue that was in the church at the time. Now there are certain letters that we enjoy getting in the post, aren't there? Um, uh, Postcards might be an example of that. 
as long as they're not too gloaty, you know, having a brilliant time, weather's been perfect, you know, whatever. Um, when Sean was at, at university, um, she would occasionally send me letters, love letters, you know, that talked about what she'd been up to and how much she liked me and they had little hearts at the bottom. And, and I, I've kept some of those letters because it's a wonderful memento of our time. You know, probably these days you just get a text, wouldn't you, saying, miss you with an emoji at the bottom or something. <laughs> you guys need to write more letters, you, you young folk. My all-time favourite letter is the tax rebate letter. You ever have one of these? I mean, it shouldn't feel as good as it should. I mean, essentially the government's just borrowed your stuff without asking and now they're giving it back. But it, it, it feels like free money, doesn't it? So you get excited. And then there's those letters we don't like getting. You know, they often start with, Dear Mr. Brockway, we regret to inform you. Or, uh, Dear Mr. Brockway, your bill is ready. I don't know why they're so cheery. Oh, I do know why they're so cheery. <laughs> And normally you can tell from the envelope whether the letter is going to be a good one or whether it's going to be one that you have to leave on the table until you've got the courage to open it. And this particular letter that Paul has sent would have taken courage, not just courage to read, but courage for Paul to write as well. You see, it was a letter of rebuke, of correction and discipline. And I imagine that Paul would have sat carefully and considered the words that he wrote. I would not be surprised to learn that he wrote this one in his own hand rather than using a scribe. And you see, before Paul sent the letter, he had visited them. And as he has visited them, he, he discovered that there was a sin in the church. That there were people that were not living the way that they should be living. There was something wrong. They had moved away from their salvation. And we don't really know what that sin was. It's not clear to us from the writings of Paul that we do have. Some people think that the missing letter deals with the sexual sin that's seen in 1 Corinthians 5, where it talks about expelling um, the believer so that they will realise how far they've moved from God. And they think that because in this letter he talks about bringing them back and forgiving them so they won't become overwhelmed with sorrow. But we don't know for sure. From the start of this chapter, we might infer that the issue was to do with Paul himself. Remember, he starts by saying, we've wronged no one, we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live and die with you. So maybe the issue was with Paul. And Paul wouldn't have that because Paul would be fearful that his message about Jesus would be um, invalid. That was his concern. We don't know the reason why he wrote the letter, but we do know because he tells us that he wrote this letter out of great distress and anguish of heart. And with many tears. This had been a hard letter for Paul to write. And really it's no wonder that it's lost. It's not the sort of letter that would have been passed around um, the church for all to see. So he sends this letter and he writes in verse 5. When we came into Macedonia we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside and fears within. Now, we have already in this series spoken about the conflicts um, that Paul was facing on the outside. Um, if your memory is really good, you might remember in chapter 1, he tells them that he doesn't want them to be uninformed. Um, but he says that they experienced great troubles in the province of Asia. They were under great pressure, far beyond their ability to endure, and that they feel as though they've received the sentence of death. And you can read about some of those troubles, a particular incident in Acts chapter 19, chapter 19, um, I haven't really got time to go into it very much with you this morning. 
but essentially there's this silversmith named uh, Demetrius, and he, he makes little silver shrines for the, their goddess, the goddess Artemis. And as Paul tells people about Jesus, um, surprise, surprise, they stop buying the silver shrines. Uh, and so Demetrius gets wound up by it and, and he pretends that he's annoyed that the goddess is losing her worship and he, he whips the city into a frenzy um, uh, so much so that they drag some of Paul's followers um, Aristarchus is one of them I can't remember the other one um, into, into a theatre and they, they, they're trying to kill them and Paul tries to go in and rescue them and the, he's held back by his other disciples who say no, no, you, you know, you're going to lose your life but this was the sort of turmoil that he was facing on the outside this is the sort of danger he was in through his ministry but here particularly he also talks about the fears within and I think the fears within here refer to his inner turmoil over the letter that he had sent to the Corinthians. He'd sent this letter written with tears and and anguish of heart, and he didn't know the outcome. He didn't know what they had said when they saw the letter, how they had received it. You know, if he'd been uh, born today, I'd imagine he'd have been checking the Corinthian Facebook to see what they had written about this letter. What were they saying? Were they saying, just read the letter from at Apostle Paul. Who does he think he is? So mad right now. Angry face emoji. <laughs> or maybe uh, they were saying, have you seen what the at Apostle Paul has said now? Who does he think he is? Hashtag out of order. Hashtag never going to happen. Hashtag this is current. Hashtag forget it, mate. <laughs> or maybe they, were, you know, maybe they were more positive. Maybe they said, just read the latest letter from our church founder, at Apostle Paul. So encouraged by his words. Lots to think about. Thoughtful emoji. Or maybe they said, Pastor Paul's letter really made me stop and think, good to be challenged. Hashtag deep thoughts. Hashtag chasing after Jesus. Hashtag Corinth Christian for life. (laughs) But you know that... I had fun this week. (laughs) (laughs) The trouble is, Paul had no way of knowing. He had no method of finding out. There was no Facebook, no phones, even the postal service was slow. We find out from this chapter that the letter was delivered by hand by this guy, Titus. And Paul was just left with his inner monologue. Did I do the right thing? Did I say enough? Did I teach them the right way? Did I, was I too harsh? Was I too soft? How will it be received? And you know, Paul is never one to shy away from rebuke or correction. When he's instructing his protege, Timothy... He writes to him, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. And you see, Paul knows, he knows in his heart of hearts that that the rebuke is necessary. It's necessary to keep the Corinthians on the straight and narrow. He doesn't find it an easy thing. He takes no comfort or pleasure in causing them discomfort and pain, but he knows it needs to be said. And we need to remember, as we read this, Paul is writing to fellow believers here. These are Christians already. Um, You know, Paul's message to to, to non-believers is different. Paul's message to non-believers would be, come to Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Understand that he has died for you, that he has rescued you from your sins. He's set you free from sin's grasp on your life. But his message to the believers is don't go back to that sin. Stay in your freedom. Don't go back to the old way of life. It's sort of like, um, 
Like if someone was drowning in an, in an ocean, and, you know, they were running out of energy and they were going under the water and, and they, weren't, they, they thought their life was at an end and then, and then the, the lifeguard arrives in a boat and he pulls them out and they say, thank you, thank you for saving me from, from drowning, thank you. Now if you just stay there, I'm just going to go for a quick swim. You know, the lifeguard would say, no, <laughs> stay in the boat. You're exhausted. Don't go back there because it won't be long before you're drowning again. And this is what Paul's trying to do to the Corinthians. And, and there may be many times when we would prefer not to offer correction or rebuke to fellow believers. We might adopt the attitude of let's live and, and let live. But ultimately, it's unhelpful. Ultimately, it leads people away from God. You know, imagine if that's how we raised our children. Oh, no, no, I'd rather not tell them off. I don't want to upset them. What kind of kids will we end up with? I'm sure many of you can relate to, to this story, but when um, Elijah was a bit younger, I was walking um, him to school on the school run, as you do, and he was playing one of his silly games where he was running ahead, I think pretending to be Mario or something. And, um, and he, he didn't stop at the end of the street. He ran into the road. And I wasn't that far behind, so I, I, I chased and I grabbed him and I, I pulled him and I, I put him on the pavement and, I, and I, you know, I shouted at him. The sort of, you know, telling off where other parents turn around and touch. You know, you know those ones? Mm-hmm. Can't control his kids. But I didn't do it because it gave me pleasure. I did it because I wanted him to understand the seriousness of what he had done. I wanted him to know that, that in the future, as he gets to the end of the payment, he needs to stop. Because going that stage further would put him in danger. I'm not suggesting that when we notice fellow believers going astray, we, we grab them by the arm and give them a roasting. Of course not. Paul says, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Doesn't he? And it might be a hard thing for us to do. And it will probably cause us great personal turmoil. And, and like Paul, we might be thinking, have we done the right thing? Are they still my friend? But in as much as Paul is not wanting to cause them pain, he also has confidence that God will continue the work in their lives. He has confidence that God is still working in them. You might remember uh, from chapter 2 that he writes, um, I wrote as I did, this is the letter, so that when I came I'd not be distressed by those who would have made me rejoice. I had confidence in you that you would all share in my joy. He's so confident in this, confident in this chapter, he, he boasts to Titus about the, the Corinthians. He says, I've boasted to him about you and you've not embarrassed me. And at the end of this chapter, he writes, I'm glad that I can have complete confidence in you. And I want to suggest to you this morning that Paul's confidence was not in his words of rebuke or correction, but his confidence was in the Corinthians' relationship with God and in God himself. So let me just um, unpack that a little bit more for you this morning. You see, in Paul's mind there are two ways that the Corinthians could have responded to this letter of rebuke. With godly sorrow or with worldly sorrow. And he writes in verse 10, that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation uh, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Two types of sorrow, one leading to death, the other leading to salvation. Those are fairly stark choices, aren't they? (laughs) I mean, is Paul overreacting here? How do we understand this? Actually, I think we have a really good example in our Bibles um, of where this is true. And that's in the lives of Peter and Judas. Two of Jesus' twelve disciples. 
his closest companions, the people that he chose to pour his life into, his followers who he was training up to take on his ministry once he left earth. He was, loved these guys. But towards the end of his ministry, towards the end of his time on earth, we read in Matthew 26, and you can turn over to Matthew 26 if you would like, that both Peter and Judas betray Jesus. We find in verse 14, Judas before the chief priests asking them, what will you give me if I hand him over to you? And he agrees to hand over Jesus to the chief priests, who he knew would kill him, were seeking to kill him for 30 pieces of silver. And in verse 69 of Matthew 26, we find um, Peter denying that he even knew him to save his own bacon. I don't know the man. He says, I don't know him, not once, not twice, but three times. And then we're told that they both regret their actions. We read at the end of Matthew 26 that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. And at the start of chapter 27, we read that Judas was seized with remorse. And both of them, they express this sorrow over their actions, but that sorrow leads them in very, very different directions. You see, Judas was unable to cope with what he had done. His sorrow led him to despair. And we read that he commits suicide. It leads him ultimately to death. And you know, there are people in this world, and maybe even in this room, who are feeling overwhelmed with sorrow for things that they've done. That's true. And there are people that aren't able to cope with what they've done, and it's leading them down a really dark path. And I think we have a responsibility to show them a different path. Honestly. But Peter's sorrow, you see, Peter's sorrow leads him back to Jesus. He chooses to repent. At the end of John's Gospel, we read that the resurrected Jesus asks him three times, Do you love me? Three times he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he doesn't just say it, though. He lives it. He doesn't deny Jesus again. In fact, he goes out and he tells people about Jesus. He becomes the founder of the church. And he is used in incredible ways. See, the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is the outcome. It's where it leads a person. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, true repentance that can be seen in a person's life. There are visible um, results. And in the case of the Corinthians, Paul knows that they've repented because of the way they respond to his letter, which has been reported to him by Titus. You know, he he outlines it for us, doesn't he? He says that that it's produced earnestness and and an eagerness to clear themselves and an indignation and alarm at the things that they've done wrong and a longing and a concern to put things right and a readiness to see justice done. And they're desiring once again to live the right way. They've been made aware that things are not as they should be and they want to take the steps that they need to take to fix it, to put it right. Whereas someone who displays worldly sorrow, on the other hand, has no desire to put it right. They only desire to avoid the consequences of the thing that they've done wrong. You know, it's entirely possible to be sorrowful and yet have no desire whatsoever to change. I want to give you um, just one more illustration from, from Scripture this morning. Um, and uh, thank you, Nick, for starting this morning with uh, David, because... David is the example I want to use. But also Saul. 
And if you're not familiar with um, your Bibles particularly, a lot of the Old Testament um, gives us the, the, the history, the story of the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. And there was a time in their history where they wanted kings to rule over them. They wanted kings to look after them. And so God appoints people, people that are after his heart, that can lead the people in the right way. And, and two of the most famous kings of Israel were probably King Saul and King David. And both of them ended up being disobedient to God's call on their life. And both of them received rebuke, in much the same way that Paul is rebuking the Corinthians, or has rebuked the Corinthians. King Saul messes up on a couple of occasions. Um, 1 Samuel 13, we read about a time where he wants to go into battle, um, but he, he doesn't wait for the priest to offer the sacrifice, as was appointed by God. He goes ahead and does it himself. So he's disobedient to God. And then a few chapters later in 1 Samuel 15, he's re- um, we find that he, he cuts a deal with an enemy king, and he's again disobedient to God. And on both occasions, he's rebuked by a prophet named Samuel. And David was also rebuked by a prophet, this, guy, this time a guy called Nathan. And arguably... You know, David's sin was a bit, bit worse than Saul's. It was, it was, in fact, it was, I would perhaps say it was much worse. Um, if you don't know the story, David spots a lady um, in a bath on a roof for some reason. I don't know why she was bathing on the roof. Um, and, and, and she's married and he's married, um, but it, his eyes betray him and he invites her into his palace and he sleeps with her and she gets pregnant. And, and he panics and he thinks, what do I do? Um, I want to put the blame on somebody. And he, you know, I need to get out of this situation. So he invites her husband back from battle where he is fighting for the king and he encourages him to go home and see his wife, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, thinking that he would think it was his baby when the baby arrives. But the guy is so honourable, he says, I'm not going to go home while my brothers are out fighting. And so David sends him back to battle with a sealed envelope which instructs his commanding officer to put him on the front lines and for the troops to withdraw so that he'll be killed in battle. So that's adultery and murder from the king of Israel. These aren't little things, are they? And so they're both rebuked. Saul by Samuel and David by Nathan. And they're both sorrowful. But it's their response that reveals the kind of sorrow that they have. Um, we can read about Saul's response in 1 Samuel uh, 15, verse 24. And Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. I've violated the Lord's command on your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so I may worship the Lord. You see, he, he admits that he's done wrong. He displays sorrow at his actions. It looks like he's going to repent. And then he puts the blame on the men. I was afraid of them, so I gave in to them. And you see, the thing with Saul is he was much more concerned about how he looked in front of the people than he was about what God had asked him to do. And we read a little later on in verse 30. He says, I have sinned. But please honour me before the elders of my people, before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. Help me to still look good. Yeah, I know I've done wrong. I know I've messed up. But, you know, I don't want this to, you know, let's just come back with me. Worship with me. Let the people think that God is still with me. You see, his concern is about avoiding the consequences of his actions. Not for the things he did wrong. Not for his disobedience to God but for the fact that he was going to look bad in front of his people. What was King David's response? Well, King David's response can be found in, in Psalm 51. 
Psalms are songs that we have in the Bible, and a lot of them were written by King David. And this is what he says in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. You know, it can feel like that sometimes, can't it? Our sin is always before us. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. He owns it. He puts the blame on no one else. And he turns back to God. And he writes in verse 10, Creating me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. And you can sense it in his words, can't you? David hates who he has become. He sees the damage that has been done to his relationship with God and he desires obedience again. Creating me a clean heart, O God. You see, godly sorrow hates sin. Worldly sorrow just hates the consequences of sin. And you know, if there's a a recurring sin in your life at the moment, it might be that you need to ask, do I hate this sin or do I just hate its consequences? Because unless we have that clean heart, that fresh perspective to hate the sin itself, the chances are we're not going to stop. We're not going to change. We might need to pray that God will give us the kind of sorrow over that sin that will lead us to repentance. Time's gone. I'm nearly done. I'm just reversing onto the drive. A couple of closing thoughts from this morning's chapter. I think Paul was really brave in his approach to the Corinthians. You know, he loved them so much that he wasn't prepared to see them throw away their salvation. So, I wonder if we can perhaps not be afraid to challenge our Christian brothers and sisters. In love, in the right way, no yelling at them on a street corner. You know, it might even be that like Paul, we have to send a letter. But let's love each other enough that we don't allow people to go quietly into the night. Who haven't we seen in a while? How are they doing? What's going on in their life? Who have we forgotten? And I think we need to have confidence as well. Paul talks a lot in this chapter about the confidence that he has. Can we have confidence that God is still at work in people's lives, even if we haven't seen them for a while? And in that, not be afraid to challenge them. Secondly, is God either in our hearts this morning or maybe even through a a Christian brother or sister, is he challenging us about an issue in our life? Are we um, perhaps being rebuked in some way? And if we are, what kind of a sorrow is it producing in us? I think, you know, the simple truth is, honestly, guys, all of us, we make a mess of this Christian life, don't we? We we, we mess up. We do things wrong. We, we, We step out of line, all of us, every single one of us. But we can either respond by making excuses, by blaming others, by wanting to to keep up appearances and pretend that everything's A-OK. Or we can turn back to God. 
And we can say, God, I need you to make a, a clean heart in me again. I need you to remind me of the joy of my salvation. I need to be brought back to that point where I know that you dealt with that sin in my life so that I can start again and live for you again. Maybe this morning some of us just need to pray that we'd be given that godly sorrow that would lead us back to repentance. And that's chapter 7. Let's uh, just close in prayer and I invite the band to come back up and lead us um, for the last time. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see our Christian brothers and sisters who perhaps we've not noticed. Father, help us to, to challenge those around us in Christian love out of a desire, a heart, to see them restored to the joy of their salvation. Help us to be bold in doing that. Father, let's not let people jump back into the ocean when we know that they're going to end up drowning again. And Father, if there are those of us this morning that perhaps just as, as, as we've listened to your word, your scripture this morning, we've just been prompted in our heart, and we know that there's something there that shouldn't be there. We know that we act or behave in a way that we shouldn't behave. We know that there is some sin that has a control over us. Father, this morning I pray that you would change our heart so that we would hate that sin enough to repent and come back to you. Father, David committed adultery and murder and you continued to use him after his repentance. Father, I pray that we would have the attitude not of Saul this morning, but of David. In Jesus' name. If you'd like to stand.